thank you very much, Peter, uh, and you're all very welcome. Um, the original Clare Island survey had on its cover uh, the title A Biological Survey uh, of Clare Island, County Mayo. But in fact, it was uh, much more than that. It uh, included history, archaeology, place names and family names, geology, etc. And as Peter mentioned, the, the history and archaeology was written by Thomas Johnson Westrop. And his paper uh, devoted about half of it really to the Abbey on Clare Island uh, because of its importance. And it was the only record of it really until the present volume was published in the, the new series, the new survey of Clare Island. Um, <clears throat> it probably is the finest uh, medieval painted interior uh, in Ireland, the finest surviving one. And it's extraordinary that it should survive uh, on this windswept island uh, in the Atlantic. Um, you can see a picture of the, uh, the abbey itself, the building in 1952 there up on the, the left. Uh, I should point out that there is an early medieval pillar stone on the site, which indicates that it's an old ecclesiastical site. Um, <clears throat> about its history, we know very, very little uh, indeed. At the dissolution, we know that it belonged to the Cistercian Abbey at Knockmoy in County Galway. Um, <clears throat> so, the Cister and they also owned uh, a half quarter of land there, which was uh, Le Caro, the half quarter. It's still the name of a townland on the island. And you can see it here. This is the Abbey. This is the island of Clare Island the place where you land today and where the castle is here on the east end. And halfway along the south uh, side is the abbey. And the townlands were reorganized in the 1890s, but this is the original uh, outline of the townlands. And this was the piece of land, the half-quarter, Le Caro, that went with the abbey and belonged to Nakmai at the dissolution. We have indications in the late 17th century <coughs> that... One of the O'Malley's, uh, Dermot Bacach O'Malley, gave the abbey and this half-quarter of land to the Cistercians at Knockmoy, um, and as a burial place for his family, and that they were buried there, the, the chiefs of the O'Malley's, from the 15th century up to the 17th century. So we have to see it as a sort of chantry chapel, especially this east end uh, of the O'Malley family. This is a, a plan of the Abbey showing the different uh, phases. Important to note, too, that it's not a parish church. The Clare Island is, is within the parish of Kilgiver, which is, is situated on the mainland. <clears throat> so, but this must have served as the only uh, church, if you like, or chapel uh, on the island. The earliest part of the building is the nave, and it may well date to about the 13th century, and I think it predates the Cistercian involvement uh, in the, the abbey. I should also say that we call it the abbey. It was never an abbey. It could never have been an abbey. It wouldn't have had enough monks. It must have been just a cell or out chapel. 
belonging to Knockmoy in County Galway. Um, that's the earliest part there, the nave. And the chancel then, which is an unusual two-story building with accommodation above and above a vault, um, <clears throat> was what I think was added in the 15th century. And then you have further additions, more uh, accommodation, a small little north wing uh, added here maybe in the later 15th, early 16th century, that, those sort of dates. <clears throat> So, so the decoration in which is confined entirely to the chancel here, the, the painting, has to be seen in that light as a sort of almost a royal burial chapel, a lordly burial chapel uh, of the O'Malley's. And this is what it, it looks like inside. Uh, you have the uh, burial, the tomb, a wall tomb on the north side with this uh, wonderful uh, tracery above it. It's original to the chancel. Uh, it's part of this laying out of this royal burial chapel or chantry chapel. Uh, here you can see the ceiling, and this is the east end with its original altar. Uh, and the stone used in this and in the base of the, the tomb is serpentinite, which was... Uh, could be quarried on the island. The rest of this here the, um, is the, the, the canopy uh, is of limestone, which had to be imported in, probably from around Westport. Uh, there are two phases of painting uh, in the chancel. Um, phase one survives on the walls, on the, especially on the north and south walls, and phase two is mainly visible on the vaulted ceiling. So <clears throat> these may go with the two phases in the chancel itself. One could be early to mid 15th century, one could be uh, later 15th century, or as late as 1500 maybe. And uh, what went with the, what sort of ceiling was there originally, we don't know. There's no trace of any phase one painting on the ceiling. It may have been a wooden ceiling, in fact. Uh, originally. So just to uh, show this plaque which is on the wall, which is a later feature, uh, with the arms of the O'Malley's, uh, it dates from uh, probably the late 17th century. And there is another plaque uh, to some of the O'Malley's, uh, an O'Malley who married Martha Brown. Uh, from the Westport, from the family who were in Westport later. Uh, and it's by the same hand, clearly. And the date on that is even later, still early 18th century. So, um, let's get on here to uh, T.J. Westrop. Uh, he was an extraordinary uh, gifted gentleman antiquarian uh, he published a remarkable number of articles on uh, medieval buildings, on promontory forts uh, from all over the country. Uh, <clears throat> and he kept a lovely series of uh, notebooks where he uh, illustrated the monuments he was describing, uh, sometimes in color. And he illustrated the 
the paintings at Clare Island, it's a very important record of them, and they're here uh, in the library, these notebooks, and some of them are on display uh, in the, the cases over to my right. Um, <clears throat> he had a, quite a job to do in recording uh, the, the, um, the paintings back in 1910. They were in very bad condition. There was a lot of algae and other growth on them which uh, hid many of them from view. Uh, he had to set up some sort of a scaffold uh, on barrels and, and planks and he traced some of them and some of the tracings survive in the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland and then he uh, drew them out in his notebooks as, as you will see over there. Uh, and <clears throat> he took so much care because he was convinced uh, that this, uh, these paintings were not going to last. Uh, but luckily they did. The OPW around that time um, to, in an attempt to save the paintings, put a cement floor over the vault and a channel out to take off the water. In fact, that was probably one of the worst things they could have done because cement, uh, eventually, uh, products from the cement leached into the, uh, the vault and came out in the paintings and did some damage in certain places. Uh, this became obvious by the 1950s uh, when a new phase of work started, the cement was completely removed and uh, a wooden roof, a wooden slate roof was put uh, on the, uh, the chancel higher up. And this helped for a while, but uh, by the 1990s, uh, dampness was coming from the ground, was coming from the air, uh, coming again through the roof, and the paintings were in a pretty perilous state. Uh, and the National Monument Service uh, commissioned uh, conservators uh, to carry out a new conservation job and to do work. Uh, the, the National Monument Service also did work in the building, uh, trying to drain the ground somewhat, uh, re-plastering. They actually uh, put a, <coughs> uh, a plastering on the wall outside of, of, uh, of course, um, lime plaster to try and keep it drier, uh, and uh, a very painstaking job of conserving the paintings was begun by Christoph Oldenburg and Madeleine Katkoff uh, and their team, and they worked for about eight or nine years uh, on it. <clears throat> uh, they had to, they didn't want to use any chemicals uh, in this work. They for instance, to kill the algae, they used ultraviolet light and then brushed it off. But it, it was a very painstaking job. You can see uh, the work here of working with uh, dental tools almost. And in places, the plaster was ready to fall and they were able to uh, stick it back in place with a, a lime <coughs> uh, grout behind it and hold it in place and then save it in that way. Probably if it hadn't been done then, uh, quite a lot of the ceiling would not even survive uh, until today. Um, since then, uh, the, the nave of the church has also now been roofed and electricity has been brought in and uh, uh, a small amount of heat and light for people who are visiting. Um, 
So, this is the north wall uh, of the church, and you can see here the, uh, the wall tomb, that plaque I mentioned, which is later, and you can see some of the phase one painting. And one and these are all new discoveries. Westrop uh, didn't really see these. He saw that bit of a crucifixion there. Uh, but what was very exciting was the discovery of a painted copy of the tracery of the wall tomb here in the wall to the east. There may have been a similar one there, but it, it's gone. Uh, and painted in black and red and white mainly. So, and there are traces of painting on the, the limestone tracery here. So we know what, how that was painted originally. Uh, from this painted copy. And above here you can see part of a stag hunt scene, stag and a hound after him. And what you're seeing coming down here is the ends of the false painted vaulting, if you like, from phase two, the terminals of it uh, coming down. So that's a separate phase from the rest. So the... Just a view of the phase one painting here. Uh, you can see the, uh, the this bit of a stag hunt on the north wall. And on the south wall then, another very important discovery made during the conservation was this Gaelic lord, I presume, uh, in his armour, riding on a horse and with a spear above his head. This is a very interesting discovery, a rare type of uh, illustration uh, from Ireland. So, uh, just to compare uh, quickly Westrop's view of the ceiling uh, with what is known now from the 1990s conservation, and you get some idea of it here. Quite a lot just wasn't visible to Westrop because there was no conservation done at the same time. Uh, but, for instance, as we'll see in a minute, the uh, St. Michael was better preserved in his day uh, than it is now. And, uh, I'll show you a picture of that now very, uh, very soon. Um, you can see here there's quite a lot of uh, new, uh, new images and I'll be going through those also. Uh, here's a photograph of the ceiling and just to, uh, looking up at a ceiling presents uh, different problems, problems of orientation, and we actually got it wrong in the book. When you look up at a ceiling, uh, you don't, and you put it on paper, uh, north and south switch around, or east and west, whichever you want, and we actually have it wrong in, in the book. Also looking at this ceiling, it's a barrel vault, uh, when you look at a picture of it there from just looking straight up, half of it is the right way up, the other half is upside down. So you really have to look at the ceiling from the south first and then look the other way and look at the northern part of it because of the way it's, it's curving up. So the two are somewhat separate. Uh, in the middle then you have a number of roundels uh, towards each end, as you can see there. So, um, just to talk very quickly about the techniques used in the painting. Um, the images were scribed into the plaster first with a sharp point, 
when the plaster was dry or maybe just still slightly wet. Uh, and then the painting was done subsequently. And uh, both have been recorded, and you'll see pictures of it as we go along. And sometimes more can be seen in the scribing uh, into the plaster because the paint uh, hasn't survived. It's a very limited palette of colours that were used. Uh, in fact, in phase one, there's nearly just black, red and white. Uh, in phase two, you also have a yellow. And these are basic red and yellow ochres. Uh, the black is charcoal black or lamp black, and the white is, of course, um, lime which is, is what they were painting on, a sort of lime wash, uh, lime plaster finish. Um, there may have been other colours that have faded, but not many. There may have been a blue as well, and there is a sort of a faded colour uh, that can be seen in some of them. So just to look at um, <clears throat> the religious symbolism first, um, when you look at it, it just seems like a chaos of images, religious and secular. Uh, and I'll just look at some of the obviously religious ones first. This is St. Michael the Archangel weighing the souls on the last day, or weighing a particular soul. Um, and as you can see, this is Westrop's watercolour of it from the notebooks here in the Academy. This is how it looks today as a result, partly as a result of damage from the cement floor that was put in around 1910. Uh, you can just about see the crossbar uh, of the uh, scales there, but uh, St. Michael uh, doesn't look as good at all anymore. Um, and I mentioned earlier this scribing into the plaster. This is a drawing of the scribing, and then this is a photograph of what survives of the paint. And this is another uh, obvious religious uh, symbol. It is the pelican uh, wounding itself to feed its blood to its young uh, in the nest here. And the nest is on a, a tree of some sort. Um, <clears throat> this is a, a common religious symbol in Ireland, a symbol of redemption through Christ's blood. Um, so quite, quite obviously religious. Uh, this may be not so obviously the harpist. It, uh, King David uh, is often shown as a harper, uh, but it's possible here that it's a, a bard singing the praise of, of the Lord, an Irish bard. Um, it'd be difficult to know, and anyhow, he's been missing his head uh, for some time. If it was David, he'd probably be shown with the crown, uh, but even in Westrop's time, uh, the head was gone. Um, two new musicians have appeared now as a result of the conservation and this is the lyre player and again the scribing probably shows it clearer than the, the painted version um, <clears throat> as it's shown beside the, the organ player it probably is religious it's probably religious music uh, that's intended here and then the organ player here, the scribing again and the uh, photograph of what survives. Um, this is the only representation of an organ from medieval Ireland. We have 
uh, information on organs in um, <clears throat> uh, historical sources from at least the, the 14th century. Uh, but as I say, this is the only actually representation and actual representation. You can see here the man working the bellows, and here's the man playing the keyboard uh, of the organ. And there are, of course, plenty of representations from uh, Britain and the continent, and this is one from the Lutteral Psalter uh, of the 14th century, uh, similarly showing the, uh, the bellows worker and the musician. <clears throat> Other images, there's, there's quite a few animals of different sorts. Some are fabulous or mythical animals, such as the dragon here, very like the dragon of Wales. And this is quite a, an intriguing um, <clears throat> image. Uh, it is a puzzle image, really, a body-sharing, body-sharing animals. You can read this, whatever it is, dragon, quadruped, as in full flight, running this way, or you can read the top part there as feeding into this part of a sort of a more crouched animal. And it actually works all four ways also. So no matter what way you look at it, uh, the, this is what uh, you're getting. So it, it's a puzzle animal. I can remember having something like that as a child uh, that you cut out and work this way, but I've never been able to find it, of course. I don't have it anymore myself. And I can't find a good parallel for this anywhere. Um, there are things called Tinner's Rabbits or something in England where rabbits are shown uh, on a stained glass window, I think, sharing ears. So, uh, and the similar stuff even in the Orient or in the Middle East, uh, some metalwork, etc. But I can't find a very good parallel for this. So if anybody knows of a good parallel for it, uh, I'd be very interested to hear about it afterwards. This is another puzzling one. Uh, in the book, it was described as a gauntlet with flame or rays rising from it. Um, we were also thinking of maybe uh, the Clive Sullish, the sword of light, but the way it's being held doesn't look like a, a sword. It's almost as if it's containing something and it's bursting out. Um, it may be the right hand of God is another possibility. Uh, Peter might have something to say about this afterwards. I mean, it's shown more as a flat hand on the high crosses with the, the firmament around it. Uh, but, you know, you get the impression of power coming out of a hand here. Uh, again, any ideas afterwards would be very welcome. Um, there are three representations of fishermen uh, fishing with tridents, as you can see here. Um, and they're all close together on the, the ceiling. Um, these were used in Ireland up to the 19th century, often that, uh, on rivers especially. Uh, they have been found in drainage works over the years, and there was, I think, a law against them from about... 1712 or so. Uh, so it, it's, it's not, it doesn't seem to be a religious image. Uh, it may be an indication of the, the wealth of the O'Malley territory uh, in salmon and fish. 
And here are wrestlers, which can be religious or it could be something else. You, you, you can have wrestlers like uh, <clears throat> uh, Jacob and the angel, um, etc., or it may indicate uh, sporting activity or something. There are wrestlers shown on one of these Scottish tombs, and there are some uh, parallels with... Uh, tomb sculpture of the late medieval period uh, in the highlands of Scotland with some of the imagery uh, in, in the ceiling at Clare Island, as pointed out by Roger Staley, uh, who has written uh, an article on it in the book. And there are quite a few images of deer hunting. We saw it in the phase one. This now is phase two, and there are a number of images. But they're quite savage to our way of looking at things. This is a hound almost tearing the throat uh, out of a stag. And I think originally or in the scribing there may even be another hound coming at him from the other side. Um, hard to think of this as religious uh, in any way. And again it may be lordly pursuits that are being represented here. And finally uh, one of the larger uh, images that spread over a number of the, the little areas on the ceiling uh, and this is the false vaulting that's put in but some of the scenes if you like spread across these some are confined within them and this seems to be a cattle raid uh, you can see here a herder and he apparently has just got an arrow in his back maybe shot by this bowman here you have a couple of people on horses. You have cattle, uh, maybe pigs as well down below. A soldier here, uh, another soldier here coming along behind, another part of a horseman. Uh, cattle raiding was a major feature of Gaelic Ireland in particular. A new lord proved himself by raiding for cattle into the neighboring territory, the traditional enemies in some cases. So again, it, it may indicate lordly pursuits rather than uh, anything religious as such. So, um, I've just been looking at this afresh now and uh, maybe getting some new ideas about how you read this or what it all uh, might mean. And as I was saying earlier, you have to look at it one half at a time. So there's the Photograph, and here's the uh, <clears throat> tracing from the photograph, really, uh, of the south side of the, um, <clears throat> the vaulted ceiling. And uh, the south side, of course, should be the more favorable side. The north was the more evil side. South is more uh, favorable generally. And if you start reading this then uh, from... Uh, Yes, from, I've, I've corrected the, you've north-south and then west-east, that's actually correct there. Reading from west uh, to east uh, on the south side and then reading, uh, <clears throat> well it's reading from right to left anyhow. I think it's also probably moving decil or clockwise which was the favorable way uh, to, to read things or to move in a circle. Um, and on this I would see it representing maybe 
the good Lord uh, and everything, nature uh, in balance and any conflicting things, everything is looking eastwards except maybe this, uh, there's a dragon and something else uh, affronted here. So they're in balance, if you like, uh, facing each other right in the center. Um, but everything else is looking towards the east apart again from the, the wrestlers here, which again are in balance because one is facing each direction. And uh, <clears throat> so you, you, what you're seeing is uh, maybe when the true Lord, when the proper Lord was in power, uh, the crops were good. Uh, you could say the tree here was full of fruit. There was abundance of fruit and mast. Uh, animals were uh, prospering uh, and here are the three fishermen so there was abundance of fish also you may ha in this uh, interpretation you, this may be the bard singing the praise uh, of the Lord um, hunting good hunting was available they wouldn't have been looking on hunting as we do in the last century or so um, as cruel or anything like that, it would have been just positive, I think. Um, and here's a man unleashing uh, a hound to attack this deer who looks frightened all of a sudden. Um, <clears throat> and finally, reading along this way, you have uh, the pelican, redemption through Christ's blood at the end of the day. Um, then looking at the north side, and this immediately is more ambivalent. This is the, ambivalent. This is the um, <clears throat> more sinister side. And it's starting here uh, with the two-headed eagle. Again, probably indicating ambivalence. Uh, and then you have the cattle raid with maybe this innocent man getting killed or wounded. Um, <clears throat> then you have this strange collection uh, of of things, maybe the hand of God, uh, a dragon who's facing, in fact, a serpent there. You can just see the head of the serpent and part of the tail of it there. So they're in balance, you could say again, the puzzle animal here. Uh, <clears throat> and then these two new images of the organ and the lyre player, possibly indicating uh, religious devotion, atonement uh, for sin, and finally ending up then with judgment, in this case, uh, St. Michael the Archangel weighing the soul on the last day. Some of the other uh, images are hard to fit in with this, and they may be just marginal images, uh, <clears throat> sort of space fillers, like this cat, uh, another cat or lynx or something, and uh, uh, a bit of hunting again just coming in there and you could look at something like the Bayou Tapestry uh, to see parallels for this where uh, there's a marginal a margin along with uh, other creatures, sometimes they're sort of footnotes on what's going on in the main uh, narrative uh, in other cases um, they're just filling in space so um, to look for parallels, we have some other uh, wall paintings in Ireland. I don't have any images of them here. Ones like Holy Cross, Abbey Knock Moy, interestingly enough, 
uh, which was the, the house that owned Clare Island, uh, but none as complete as the uh, <coughs> paintings in Clare Island itself. Um, you also have parallels in stonework, as here at Clontuskert in County Galway, where you have a St. Michael, uh, you have a pelican somewhere, you probably can't see him here, and uh, two affronted animals again, like the ones on the, the ceiling. And this states, this, this is actually, the inscription on it dates it to 1471 or so. Um, the new image of the uh, mounted lord uh, in armour, etc., is very similar to this manuscript illustration of the 14th century or early 15th century um, showing Art McMurray here on horseback uh, attacking Richard II on his uh, trip to Ireland in the 1390s. Um, <clears throat> the, they're very similar in every way because the, in the Gaelic fashion they didn't use stirrups and uh, saddle they just sat on a sort of cushion. Uh, and the armour, as shown, is, is quite similar also. And the way he's even holding this, the spear uh, is similar. So, um, just to, to get uh, finish up here now, um, The, the conservation work that was carried out on the Abbey of Clare Island was, of course, the work of uh, the National Monuments Service, but the publication of it uh, was part of the new survey of Clare Island uh, here in the Royal Irish Academy. So there's been a lot of cooperation between the National Monuments Service, now partly in the Department of the Environment, partly in OPW, uh, and the Royal Irish Academy in the production of this. And it wouldn't have been possible without the enthusiasm of the conservators, um, Christoph Oldenburg in particular, uh, and uh, Karina Morton, who wrote uh, the main accounts of the, uh, the paintings uh, in the published book. Um, <clears throat> I'd also like, like to thank David Sweetman and Breen Ronane who did the survey of the building as part of the Clare Island survey uh, originally. Um, and also uh, the uh, editorial and design staff here in the Royal Irish Academy who are an absolute delight to work with. And uh, uh, even though my name might be there as one of the editors, uh, an awful lot of work was done by... Uh, the likes of Roisin Jones, etc., in producing these books. We now have the volume five also available on the archaeology uh, of Clare Island. We had a particularly memorable uh, launch of the Abbey volume uh, back in about 2006, I think, on the island, and Cistercian monks from Ross Gray uh, came to sing vespers uh, in the church uh, during the, the launch. Um, one, and I'd like to thank them for doing that. It made it uh, an absolutely extraordinary occasion. It possibly was the first time any Cistercians had been there, especially involved in singing uh, at the Abbey for hundreds of years. 
the man on the right there, Father Richard, has now been made the abbot of Ross Gray. Uh, he had to get a special dispensation because he was below the normal age for being uh, an abbot. So it shows you you get dividends for supporting uh, the Clare Island Survey. <laughs> Um, finally, just to say a word or two about uh, why this monument is so important. As I said er earlier, it probably gives you a better idea of what a medieval painted interior uh, was like than any other building in Ireland. I suppose the uh, <clears throat> Cormac's Chapel uh, at Cashel gives you some idea, but it's probably more fragmented. Um, so it, it is really uh, quite unique uh, in Ireland. Uh, it's not wonderful art in comparison with what you'd see on the continent, but it is very, very rare uh, in Ireland. And it's not only rare as a painting, it's rare because per art in perishable materials from the church in medieval Ireland uh, is very, very rare. There's hardly any carved timber work. Even if you go over to Wales, you'll find lots of rude screens. There must have been hundreds of rude screens in Ireland, and not a single one survives. Um, we have some books, but not, not that many. Uh, there must have been tapestries and other forms of art, perishable forms that are gone. So uh, this is a, a wonderful jewel, a wonderful survival, and such a, a wonderful place that it did survive on Clare Island. Thank you very much.